Great to see you once again. James chapter four, as we begin to wind down the study through James, we've done verse by verse. We're getting there to the end of the letter, and he wants us to live a better than average life. You may have lived as an average student. All right, here's good news. You don't have to live an average life. A can stand for abundant. That's what Jesus came to do in John 10 and verse 10. He said, I've come to give you life and you can have it more abundantly. Uh, I am looking forward to the leaders exchange. If you're a business leader and you don't have to be a business leader, I like to say everybody is somebody's leader. You will enjoy this breakfast we do as a way to bless our city, especially the business sector. Dan Rockwell is a leadership consultant coach, internationally known. I'm so thankful he'll be here that morning for our leadership exchange, breakfast, networking, great opportunity to bring uh, your team. So we went to New Orleans back in August, a lot of you know that, I've talked about it, it as our family vacation, and we had a ph phenomenal time, fabulous time. We met a family there for dinner. This is the Buffonis, Terry and Susan Buffoni. Now, uh, Terry and Susan Buffoni were longtime family friends, our longtime family friends of uh, Kathy and Josiah Jones. Josiah is our paradigm young adult pastor. And a year earlier, my oldest son, Jake, had gone to New Orleans, and the Buffonis had kind of put him and his friends up in their home. They were so kind that Southern hospitality had taken them around town, took them out to dinner, showed them where to go, what to do. So when Jake found out we were going on our family vacation down in New Orleans, he wanted to have dinner with the Buffonis who he'd met a year earlier. Now, honestly, I wasn't that excited about doing it, because I'm on vacation, and I really don't want to have to be on. I just want to call a timeout. You know what I mean? I mean, going to dinner with complete strangers on vacation, if you know what I'm saying. But Jake really, really wanted to. He'd kept in touch with him, so I agreed to have uh, dinner. And uh, I was really glad that I did, because this night we sat there eating Cajun. And uh, have you ever met somebody for the first time, you feel like you've known each other forever? And that's what it was like, right? After spending two hours together, felt like we'd known each other for 20 years, lifelong friends, got to know uh, Terry and Susan so well. Terry was having surgery later that week, which amazed me even more that he was sitting here because if it's weird for me to sit with a stranger and have dinner on vacation, it's gotta be equally weird for him to have dinner with a stranger when he's about to have surgery in 48 hours. And what I noticed about Terry is that he was completely at peace. I mean, he knew Jesus, and we talked about the gospel, and uh, got to know each other really well, seating at dinner. And so I learned several things about him. We connected right away. He loves football, so we connected. Of course, he's all about the saints, and we're about the chiefs, but you know, there's a place of grace there. It's okay, he's in New Orleans. We let him do his thing down there. And uh, he loved family, he loved fun. So we got done eating dinner, and he said, let's go for snowballs. Now, I never knew what snowballs were. When we went, people said, well, you need to do the beignets and be sure you have some, uh, you know, a lot of Cajun. And so he said, let's have snowballs. I didn't realize that this is a local flavor, a local thing they do in New Orleans. Snowballs is shaved ice, and you can have any flavor you want of shaved ice, but in the middle of the shaved ice is vanilla cream. Yeah, it was awesome, it was. It was full of calories and fat, fat calories. And when I say fat calories, I don't mean the good fats, I mean the bad fats, but you realize on vacation, any calories consumed outside of your zip code don't count, right? So we are partying. I mean, we are living it up with snowballs on this particular night. I had root beer, I think my, you know, my daughter had peach, and this is Terry. And we just had a fabulous time, knew we'd become lifelong friends after spending just one evening together. I could not have fathomed, could not have imagined that 56 hours after this picture was taken, 
Terry would be dead. He died. On Friday morning of that week, this is Tuesday night at 531, massive heart attack. He stepped out into eternity, just like that. I want you to see that that's the very thing that James is now talking about with you and me. There's not one among us that has a guarantee we will be here next week. There's not one among us that has a guarantee that we're going to take one more breath or that our heart will beat one more time. Do you understand that it's God who holds our life in his hand? He is the author of our life. And what that means is he holds our next breath. He holds our next beat of our heart. And Terry, what amazed me is how he was absolutely at peace. Like, I knew he didn't want to see Jesus that week, but he was ready to see Jesus that week. And let me ask you, if you were not here next week, if indeed you today closed your eyes in time and you woke up in eternity, do you know for sure what you would see? Can you say emphatically that you're ready for your destiny? This is what James is now talking to us about this morning. James chapter four, we're gonna pick up in verse 13 where we left off a week ago. You ready for this? Say yes. yes. All right, here it goes. He says, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Look how James describes our life. He says it's a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It's a vapor. It's gone. And that's the imagery that he uses here for our life. It's here for a little time and then vanishes away. He's obviously speaking here about the brevity of life. He says life is like a vapor. Now, what he's saying is obvious. Life is fleeting. Life goes fast. Life is frail. Life is fragile. He says life is like a vapor. Now, to illustrate this, I'm going to illustrate with my, my, my personal pocket-sized can of hairspray. I take this with me everywhere I go. I don't leave home without it. Because I'm just that kind of guy, I don't want there to be a hair out of place. So I'm just always prepared, right? So life is like a vapor. Here it is, watch, don't miss this. Here for a little while, and then vanishing away. That's what James is saying. It's, it's like a vapor, here for a little while, and then it's gone. I mean, you can see it, and then you can't. Life is like a vapor, here for a little while. <laughs> and then vanishing away. Kind of like my hair, now you see it, now you don't. But now I won't have a hair out of place the rest of the day. I will smell like hairspray the rest of the day, but I won't have a hair out of place. Hey, hey, do you get the point? It's obvious, isn't it? Life is like a vapor, here for a moment and then it's gone. And I know it's hard for some of us to fathom, hard for some of us to imagine. It's easy to feel like or live like this life will last forever. And what James is reminding us is that it's fleeting, it's frail, it's fragile, it's not gonna last forever. Here's the reality, when you're younger, you feel like it's gonna last forever. Uh, somebody told me recently, well, Pastor Phil, you're now middle age. I just want you to know, I am not middle age. I'm not middle age. Tell me, tell me, when is middle age? When do you hit middle age? Somebody, what, what is middle age anyway? 40. 40. Somebody else? 50. Somebody else? It's kind of ambiguous. Uh, thank you. Somebody said 100. It's getting farther out all the time. Here's the reality. Listen carefully. I know this because I checked this morning with Siri. She knows everything, okay? 
I said, Siri, what is the average life expectancy of the average American in the United States? And she knew right away. Guess what it is? It is 78.7. The average life expectancy of the average American is 78.7, which means I am way past middle age. I am way beyond middle age. Unless I live to be like 90 or 100, I am not midlife. I'm past midlife, like I'm in the second half of my life. And I hate to tell you this, but if you're like mid to late 30s, you actually are middle age. You've hit that midway point. You say, I want you to, it, it's, it's just fleeting. And here's what I am gonna tell you though, just to encourage you a little bit, because I don't want us to get too morbid and all of a sudden like, oh, I'm gonna die, but you are gonna die. But <laughs> relax, all right, hopefully not now, but you need to prepare if it is now. That's what James is talking about this morning. But, but I just want to encourage you. So I meet uh, young adults sometimes. I hang out at Paradigm some on Tuesday nights. And uh, I hear you know, young adults, you know, I'm in my 20s, and these are supposed to be the best years of my life. The good news is, no, they're not. The good news is it gets better. I just want you to know it gets better. Like I'm in the best years of my life right now. I really feel that way. So just hang on. If it's not going well now in your 20s, just hang on. It's going to get better. The best time is now. In fact, I'm convinced the best time of life is the time of life you're in. It's the best season of life. I mean, don't constantly look behind you about, oh, those were the good old days. These are the good old days. And don't constantly be looking in front of you like, if I could just get that job or if I could just get that promotion or if I could just get to retirement, because life is happening right now. And so make the good old days the ones you're in. That's what I can tell you. Every season of life has its own joys, has its own sorrows. Yes, every season has its trials of its own, but it also has the joys of its own. So enjoy whatever season you're in. But this much I have learned, the older you get, the faster it goes. Now, I can't explain why. This three-dimensional place we live called time is just strange. I mean, he describes it as a vapor here for a little while and it's gone. You can see it and then you can't. Regardless of how old you are, regardless of how much longer you have to live, you might live to be 70, 80, 90, 100 years old. What James is saying is that life is but a vapor here for a little while, then vanishing away. It doesn't matter how long you live, your life compared to eternity is a speck of dust on the carpet. That's it. And he's saying it's silly to live for time exclusively when you're going to live forever somewhere, forever and ever in eternity. We need to live with urgency, with a focus on our ultimate destiny. That's the reality. Now listen carefully. He says in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Okay, see the difference? Like, we, we don't have as much control over our life as we think. There's not one of us that can really control when we're going to die or how we're going to die. What we do have control, though, is how we're going to live. And so James is teaching us how to live. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. He's saying it's a proud, arrogant heart that you would plan for your future without making God part of the plan. I mean, as mere mortals, how silly. 
knowing that we all have this thing called mortality. There's a one for one. The birth rate and death rate is still one for one. Because of our own mortality, it's arrogance that we would think we can live and die apart from God. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Here's what he's teaching. He's saying, look, it is sinful to plan your future without making God part of the plan. And I would suggest it's not only sinful, it's just plain stupid. Like, well, why would anybody plan for their future without making God part of the plan? It's uh, not just sinful, it's silly that we, knowing our own mortality, would plan for our future and ultimately our destiny without making God part of the plan. Here's the reality. Every single one of us, one day, we are gonna close our eyes in time and we're gonna wake up in eternity. Do this with me. Everybody take a breath and hold it. Let it out. 10 people just died. Take another breath and hold it. Let it out. 10 more people just died. Take a breath and hold it. Let it out. 10 more people just died. Do you realize 150,000 people all over the world every day pass from time into eternity? 154,000 and some change to be exact. I know that number too because I, I asked Siri. <laughs> yeah, statistically, 154,000 plus every single day step out of time into eternity. You realize one day, one of those 150,000 will be you and one day, one of those 150,000 will be me. Do you see why James is saying it is silly, stupid, and yet sinful to plan for your future without making God a part of your plan, knowing your own mortality, knowing that one day you will step into eternity? Let me ask you, are you ready? If today you died, do you know where you would be? Do you know emphatically what you would see if you closed your eyes in time and you woke up in eternity? What's it mean to make God a part of the plan? Here's the reality. One day you're going to live forever somewhere. Death is not the end. Death is only the beginning. How do you make God part of the plan as you plan for your future and make God part of that plan? Well, here's the reality. Jesus told us twice in John chapter 3. It must be important because he said it twice. He said, marvel not, I say unto you, you must be born again. Twice he said, marvel not, I say unto you, you must be born again. What's that mean to be born again? Well, first of all, it's recognizing that you have sinned. And because of your sin, you're separated from him. You see, God is holy. That means he's sinless and we're not. And because he is holy and sinless, heaven is a place of perfection. Do you understand not even one sin can enter into heaven? If even one sin were let into heaven, heaven would no longer be heaven. It would become like earth, a place of corruption and the reality is 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Every single one of us have sinned. Romans 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have fallen short of God's perfect standard of heaven. Now somebody says, oh, Phil, I'm okay. I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. Let me tell you what Jesus said in Matthew 19. No one is good except for God. You see, Jesus was teaching, you're using the wrong standard for heaven. Everybody can find somebody they're gooder than. I mean, I'm gooder than them, and I'm gooder than them, and I'm gooder than them, and I'm gooder than them, all right? It's comparison. 
But you see, the reality is while you can find somebody you're gooder than, you can always find somebody gooder than you. You see, you can always find somebody you're better than. You can always find somebody you're worse than. You see, you're doing a comparison. And Jesus was teaching, heaven is not built on comparison. Heaven is a place of perfection. That means it's past fail, which is why all men have sinned. And that's why all men have fallen short of God's perfect standard of heaven. You see, good is not what gets you into heaven. Perfection is what gets you into heaven. And though you may be a good person, you're not a perfect person. You may be better than them and worse than them but it doesn't matter because all men and women have sinned. That means we're all desperate for redemption. We all need this thing called redemption. We don't need religion. Listen, I'm not talking about your church affiliation. I'm not talking about your denominational tradition. I'm not talking about learning some catechism. I'm not talking about have you been through baptism. I'm talking about this. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you asked Jesus to forgive your sin? Because it's not what you do for God that gets you into heaven. It's what God has done for you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3 and verse 5, it says, not by works of righteousness we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. You see, it's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and not your work at all. Have you trusted in him? Have you put your faith in him? Has there been a moment in your life that Jesus called it being born again. What's it mean to be born again? Listen carefully. You don't come into this world as a child of God. You see, listen, we think sometimes everybody's a child of God. No, that's not at all what Jesus taught. Not everyone is a child of God. You see, you come into this world physically alive but spiritually dead because you've been born in sin. You've been born as a member of Adam's fallen race with that fallen nature to sin. And consequently, you come into this world as a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. But John 1.12 says, as many as received him, Jesus, to them, gave them power to be called the children of God. You see, when you put your faith in these sons, of God. Only then are you born again as a child of God. Only then have you been forgiven. So has there been a moment in your life that you trusted in Jesus personally and what he did on the cross of Calvary to deliver you from sin's penalty? It says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Yes, one day you're going to die because of your sin. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he may die, yet shall he live eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, Phil, what do I do? It's really, really simple. It's so clear. Jesus wants it to be emphatically clear. He doesn't want you to have to wonder or wish or hope or guess you're going to heaven. You can know today with certainty that your home forever is heaven. That is your destiny, Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, and whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall shall be saved. If today you will call on the name of Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin and give me redemption, he will save you instantly, deliver you from sin's penalty, and you can leave this place today knowing that you have life eternally. That's what it means.
That's what Jesus wants you to do. That's what James is telling us about today. As he warns us about the brevity of life, the frailty of life, he's saying, listen, there's eternal life. Jesus is teaching, as James is teaching here now, it is sinful to plan for your future without making God a part of the plan. You see, he's warning us as God is wooing us. God is warning you and he's wooing you. You see, he wants people to understand that this life is not all that is and it's not all that matters. Yet most of the time, that's exactly how we live. As if this life is all that is, as if this life is all that matters. You realize twice in the scriptures, it tells us that God says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's foolish to think, well, there's no God. All this just got here randomly, coincidentally. All this foolishness. Do you realize the modern science of probability mathematically has illustrated that it's not only an improbability, it's an impossibility that all this got here randomly, accidentally. It's been proven mathematically that the probability of all this coming into existence all by itself is a mathematical impossibility. That's why God says the fool is in his heart, there is no God. But, but can I tell you who the bigger fool is? Those of us who know there's a God and then just live like there's not one. And you see, the church is full of people who know there's a God. We come once a week and sing about God and we hear a message about God and we intellectually know there's a God and theologically we'll believe there's a God, but then we pretty much live independently of him from there on after. That's what I call the Christian atheist. Yeah, that's a paradox. Christian atheism, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a paradox. It's an oxymoron, but, but listen carefully. That's how we live today, increasingly, in 21st century Christianity. We come for an hour and a half to church on occasion and throw God a bone, and then we pretty much live on our own. We know there's a God, we just live like there's not one. And consequently, we focus on the material and the physical, and we ultimately are going to be bankrupt of the spiritual and the eternal. Look, he says in James 5 and verse 1, come now, you rich, weep, and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. He says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. He says, your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Now, James knows exactly how human beings are built. Most of us are built, in fact, all of us are built to put our hope for safety and security in our money and material wealth physically, right? Now, he's not saying it's sinful to have money. He's not saying it's sinful to have lots of money. What he's saying, though, is that many of us make our life pursuit accumulating wealth materially, and we're going to be bankrupt, consequently, eternally. Because most of us look for our security and money. Most of us look for our safety and how much we can accumulate financially. And do you realize that anything you hold in your hands, anything you can hold in your hands, do you realize one day it will have no value? Doesn't matter how much you accumulate, how much stuff you have, one day will have zero value. 
And this is what James is reminding us. Everything in this world will one day rust, decay, and completely fade away. Hey, he's not against having a nice house, a beautiful home. He's not saying it's sinful to drive a really, really nice car or to have a really, really good job and make lots and lots and lots of money. That is not the issue. The issue is not having lots of possessions. The issue is do those possessions possess you? And James understands that for most people, they don't possess their possessions, their possessions possesses them. And he's trying to remind us for all the things that we serve and all the energy and all the money and gathering all the stuff, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's attached to this world, it's either dead, decaying, or dying. It will have zero value in eternity. No matter how much you accumulate of this world's wealth, it will eventually have zero value. Every single one of us is going to die broke. And when we stand before Jesus, materially and physically, we will be absolutely broke. It will not matter if you are a multi-millionaire and you lived in great wealth materially, or if you live physically in a place of poverty, everybody's going to be equal when they stand before God. And none of it will matter. I mean, five seconds after you die, you're not going to worry about your retirement portfolio. Five seconds after you die, you're, you're not going to worry about that next car you're going to drive. So he's saying none of that will have any value. Now listen, it's not saying it's wrong to pursue those things or it's wrong to have those things. What he's saying is keep it in its proper perspective. And so much of the time we lose the proper perspective by being temporarily focused, tunnel vision, as opposed to eternally focused. Only then do we understand where our true wealth really is. Number one, real wealth is found in a life of worship. If real wealth is not found in material wealth because eventually it's all going to rust, decay, or fade away, then where's real wealth found? Well, I thought of a couple things this week at least. Real wealth, I'm convinced. If you want to have real wealth eternally and you want to live in such a way as to prepare for your eternal destiny, it begins with a life of worship. All right, now what is worship? Listen very carefully. We come on Sunday morning and we sing, but I'm going to tell you, that's only one form of worship. Now, for some of us, that's good news. Because, well, like, I don't sing very well. All right? Just so you know, listen, I'm not a great singer, but I am a worshiper. There is a difference. That's why the psalm says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You may not be able to sing, but you can at least grunt. And if you're giving God glory with your grunt, that's a joyful noise, Okay? But you need to understand something. Worship with your lips is only one kind of worship. Real worship is not merely with your lips, it's with your life. See, worship is a lifestyle. And here's the reality. If you haven't worshiped all through the week as a worshiper, you're not gonna suddenly become a worshiper because you walk through the doors of this church on Sunday. See, some of you don't worship when you come because you haven't worshiped already. And if you're not a worshiper before you get here, you're not going to suddenly become one once you get here. See, what happens on Sunday morning should just be an overflow of the worship that you've had already throughout the week. You see, worship is a lifestyle, okay? 
Now, Genesis 22 gives us the definition of worship. If it's not merely singing, it's not merely a song, then what is it? Genesis 22 gives us the first mention ever of the word worship in Scripture. Now, there's a law of Bible study called the law of first mention. And the law of first mention says that the way a word is used the first time in Scripture sets forth the pattern and gives us the definition for how that word is used thereafter. And when you look in Genesis 22, what's going on? Well, you have Abraham that's about to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Now you know the story God tells Abraham to take his son out and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Now we know that God was not about to let him do it. But understand something, we know that God wasn't gonna let him do it, but Abraham didn't know that God wasn't gonna let him do it. See, God was testing him. He was saying, is there anything in your life that you will withhold from me? I want you to take your son, your son whom you love, and sacrifice him to me. Now listen, they get to the base of Mount Moriah. They're right down there at the bottom of that mountain. And it tells us in Genesis 22 that Abraham looks at these two companions who traveled with him. And he says these words, you guys stay here. I and the lad are going yonder to worship. Now let me ask you something. Was there gonna be any singing on Mount Moriah that day? There wasn't no songs gonna be playing on Mount Moriah that day. No sound system on Mount Moriah that day. They weren't going up there to sing. They weren't going up there for a song. They were going up there for sacrifice. You see, worship is about sacrifice, and what that means is that unless you have sacrificed, you have not worshiped, it doesn't matter what song you sing. And you see, the reality is a life of worship as a worshiper is not just about singing. It's about living a life of sacrificing. So what have you sacrificed to the Savior today? You see, there's only one type of worship that really matters. It's Romans 12 and verse 2, that you become a living sacrifice, that I'm living as a lifestyle, a lifestyle of sacrifice. You probably have heard the story, 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupts, destroys the ancient city of Pompeii. And actually, they just brought several years ago to City uh, Union, actually Union Station, the museum there, they always have these displays and kind of these traveling things they do. They actually brought several of these bodies that had been instantly mummified as they were embalmed in volcanic ash. And what's amazing about this story, 79 AD, as Mount Vesuvius erupted, is hundreds and hundreds of people died. Horrible tragedy of antiquity. But what is amazing is it happened so fast, even though that volcano for weeks was trying to warn them, they wouldn't pay attention. Listen, God is trying to warn some, are you paying attention? And unfortunately, the occupants of that city wouldn't pay attention. So consequently, when Mount Vesuvius finally erupted, it erupted with such ferocity that it completely covered that city almost instantly, and hundreds and hundreds of people died. And the amazing thing is, the last moments of their life were forever frozen in time. They were instantly embalmed in volcanic ash. And one of the stories of the excavation I found amazing. As the archaeologists excavated the city, they found hundreds of these people instantly frozen in time, embalmed in volcanic ash. One of them was of a lady. 
and they found her near the city gate. She was clearly trying to escape. Life was beckoning to her beyond the city gate, and death was harking hard at her heels. But she paused for just a moment to turn around. She was reaching for something, the last moment of her life, forever frozen in time, her outstretched fingers just beyond her reach. They found a bag of pearls. She had paused just long enough to pick up her bag of pearls that she had dropped. Her possessions possessed her and it cost her. Frozen forever in time, her last moments. You see, the reality is we're all worshipers. We all worship something. Every human being is a worshiper. Do you realize an atheist is a worshiper? We're all made to worship. Everyone worships something. You say, what do I worship? You know the object of your worship by that which you're willing to sacrifice the most for. That which you sacrifice for, that which you serve the most, that which you're willing to give the most, your energy, your money, whatever it is, that's how you know what you worship. There are people that worship their house. There are people that worship their car. There are people that worship their lawn. If you come to my house, you know I don't worship mine. Uh, there are people that worship the chiefs. They do. I mean, there will be one house of worship larger than any other house of worship anywhere in the city today. Guess where it is? It's Arrowhead, 70,000-seat worship center. Now, by the way, I'm a football fan. I'm not saying it's bad to be a fan. It's not. What I'm saying is, it's wrong to worship them. I've heard people say, well, this is our year. I'm just certain this is it. This is the year. This is the year we're going all the way. I mean, look, and they're playing good. I mean, we're going Super Bowl. This is the year. Now, I'm just, I just got to warn you. Listen, I have been watching them for 20 years. <laughs> I'm just saying, guard your heart from heartbreak, okay? It's a little bit early to make these predictions that some people are making. I'm just saying, guard your heart because they broke people's before. Ever heard of Lynn Elliott? Some of you haven't. Here's what I want you to see. We're all gonna worship something or somebody. The only question is, what is the object of your worship? See, nobody else is worthy of our worship. The bulk of our energy, our time, our treasures, our money, uh, the bulk of what we sacrifice for, the bulk of what we serve. Jesus alone is worthy. The Savior, not the stuff. You see, real wealth is found not in possessions, but in a person. And that means real wealth is found in the life of worshiping. Look at what Jesus said when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also. He said to them, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, the same will save it. This is what it means to be a worshiper as a lifestyle. That which you try to hang on to, you will one day lose. Only that which you let go of is God able then to give back to you. As you let go of your life, and sacrifice your life, you become a true worshiper of the living God. And Jesus makes this promise. When you try to hang on to it, you will one day lose it. But if today you let go of it, you're gonna find that you gain it. And that's what happens when you worship. 
in the way you live, not just with your lips, but as a lifestyle. Now, then he makes this really compelling question to make you think. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? How many of us are attempting to gain the whole world, but we are losing our own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Your soul is the only thing you have that will last forever. You will live eternally. And Jesus is saying, how silly that one would exchange his eternal soul for the temporal things of this world. You see, real wealth is found in worship. Real wealth is found in being a witness. Now, we all heard Christ, you know, Christian life, that we're supposed to be a witness. And Jesus said in Acts 1 and verse 8, you shall be witnesses of me. But again, listen, this is more than something you do with your lips. This is about how you live. It's a lifestyle. Now listen, nobody's ever just looked at someone's life and come to Christ, all right? Eventually you gotta open your mouth and use your lips to share the gospel that Christ died for our sin so that we could be forgiven. Three days later, he rose again. But it all begins with your life. This is a lifestyle. This isn't something you do, this is something you are. And this is how Paul put it to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse two. Look at what it says. You are our epistle. That word epistle means letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Hear what, hear what he's saying? You are a living letter from God to all men. And every single time somebody looks at you or talks to you or interacts with you, God is writing through you his letter to them. You're a living letter in your neighborhood. You're a living letter to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your family members that don't know Jesus. Oh, you're an epistle, a letter from God. Let me ask you, when people look at you, what kind of letter do they see? We wanna be at our church, what we say, living proof of a living God to a watching world. When people look at your life, do they see living proof of a living God to a watching world? That's the living letter that the Apostle Paul says he wants you to be for the Lord Jesus Christ. Clearly, you're an epistle of Christ. Jesus is writing a letter through your life, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh that is of the heart. Here's what he's saying. This letter is not like any other letter. In the ancient days, letters were written on tablets of stone. But today, this letter is not written, as we would say today, typed on a computer. It's not written as a text or an email. It's a living letter that God is writing on your heart. What kind of letter do you want the world to see? What kind of letter do you want to leave behind one day for your family? See, this is how we plan for the future. What is the legacy that you want to leave? The letter you leave behind for your children, your grandchildren, and even their children's children. That's the letter that's at stake. I have here a tablet. It's not a tablet of stone, but it's a tablet nonetheless. You've got three lines if you've got a handout. I want you to think this afternoon about what is the letter that you would like Jesus to write with your life. When people remember your life, and this letter is the only thing you get to leave behind, what is it that you want people to see? I have written four things here on this tablet that when people remember me, long after I'm in heaven, what is the letter that I will leave? And this much I know, listen carefully, I've been to a lot of funerals, I have preached a lot of funerals. I've heard a lot of people eulogized at a whole lot of funerals. And this is something I have noticed. Nobody is ever remembered for what they had. They are remembered for what they gave. 
See, I've never heard anybody eulogize somebody. You know, Jim, Jim was an awesome guy. You know the best part of Jim's life? He had an absolutely amazing house. I mean, it was awesome. It was 8,000 square feet, six bedrooms in that thing. I mean, it was amazing. Nobody says that at funerals. No, nobody, I've never heard anybody, you know, Sally, I mean, we're gonna miss Sally. Let me tell you what I most appreciate about Sally. She had the hottest car I had ever seen. <laughs> nobody says that. No, people talk about what they left, what they gave, not what they had. So as you think about this letter that Jesus is writing with your life that you want others to see, what are some things that you would put on that letter? Because in some way, God wants us to think ahead of time about that legacy because ultimately, we are writing in some capacity our own destiny. You see, ultimately, real wealth is found in living by the word. It's found in living as a worshiper. It's found as a witness and it's found in living by the word. You realize the Bible, the word of God, is the one thing that you can hold in your hands that will last forever when everything else you can touch and everything else you can hold will one day decay and fade away. The Word of God is going to last forever. Isaiah 40 and verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Real life is found in following the Word of God. Listen carefully. It is impossible to be a follower of the Son of God if you're not willing to follow the Word of God. And I know this is an age where people say, well, the Bible, it's outdated, it's antiquated, it's full of contradictions, and you can't pay attention. No, listen carefully. It is the living, powerful Word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce even to the vision of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ephesians 6, 12 it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I'm going to tell you, listen, you can plan for your future, but not make God a part of the plan, thereby not following the Word of God, because the Word of God gives you the plan. And I will promise you, listen carefully, we live in a broken world cursed by sin, and that means it's going to be difficult at times for all men and all women. I mean, life is hard. For all of us. But I'm going to tell you, it's a whole lot harder without Jesus. I mean, it's hard either way. But it's a whole lot harder without Jesus. We do a lot of counseling at our church. We have a counseling center uh, that will see over 7,000 people this year. Pastoral staff does a lot of pastoral counseling. I've done a lot of counseling in my time. You don't want to come to me for counseling. I'm just telling you. You're having a marriage problem, financial, you don't want to come to me. You know why? I'm not a great counselor. I'm going to tell you. Here's the problem. You didn't live for Jesus. You want to make your marriage better? Live for Jesus. You want to make your finances better? Live for Jesus. See, it all comes back to this one thing. It really does. Live for the Son of God, follow the Word of God. I will absolutely promise you, it's gonna be hard either way, but it's gonna be a lot easier if you do it God's way. I'm not lying to you. And most of the time, the problems people have is self-inflicted. I mean, the issues we face 
self-inflicted because we wouldn't listen to God's word. We wouldn't listen to what Jesus says. And that's why I'm telling you real wealth, it's found in the word of God. And it's not enough to be a Bible believer if you're not a Bible obeyer. Let me ask you, will you obey the word of God in every part of your life? And I can promise if you will, it's gonna be the very, very best life. I, I was never a great car guy, never that much of a car guy. This was the first car I drove after Chris and I got married. It is a aqua green Geo Prism. Yeah, you can see I wasn't into my image. Uh, I would literally lean that seat as far back as it would go, just because I had to to drive it. I'm six foot six. Got 40 miles a gallon. Cheap set of wheels, that's why I did it. Uh, from here, we started having children. Kind of hard to put car seats in the back of the seat when you're already in the back seat. <laughs> so um, we, uh, we went up to the minivan, had an old silhouette. Drove this thing for years. I call it the man van. Yeah. And I drove a few other things along the way. Eventually, I got a 1997 Chevy S10. Bought it for 4,000 bucks, four-wheel drive, cheap set of wheels. Still have it to this day. It's now the farm truck. And uh, after this truck, I had a white work truck Silverado, gotten a hit on collision with it, totaled it out, did really good on the insurance. So I was finally able, after over 20 years, to get the truck I always wanted. I drive it to this day. 2014, I bought it in 2015. So it wasn't new, but it was new to me. And I'm finally in a vehicle that I really enjoy driving, actually enjoy getting into, really do. And I finally, after all these years, I'm driving this truck that I really, really like. I come out one day and I find somebody has keyed the tailgate of my truck. God spared their life, he spared mine too. Because <laughs> I never catch anybody while they're doing this stuff. Spared their life, mine too, I'm sure. Have you guys ever had a brand new vehicle that you really loved and you get that first dent in it? That first ding? just can't stop thinking about it every time you get in it. So I come out a little bit later, again, I, you know, it's not enough to turn in the insurance, so you know, I'm just gonna live with this. Next thing, I got a little ding here, a little dent here. You know what God's trying to teach me? He just wants me to remember, someday this truck will not matter. 50 years from now, it will have no value. 30 years from now, it will have been rusted, decayed, scrap metal. Let me ask you, what is your truck? We all have one. For some of us, it's our golf clubs. For some of us, it's our hobbies. For some of us, it's our sports team. I mean, that's the time of year we're in, where people, you know, fly their flags and post their colors and drive down I-70 with little tiger tails coming out from underneath the trunk. I mean, stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> we get all worked up about, did our team win or lose? And you know what, it, 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 it's fun. Go ahead and cheer for who you want to. But I want you to see the things that really matter now, one day, just won't matter. And this is what amazed me about Terry's life, sitting there with him that night as we talked, as we got to know each other over dinner. Here's this guy, he's facing surgery. 
but he's completely at peace, completely in a place of tranquility. When we talked that night, he didn't think he was gonna see Jesus Friday morning of that week, but he was ready to see Jesus Friday morning of that week. Let me ask you, if you died Friday morning of this week, like Terry, would you be ready? Today is the day if you've never placed your faith seriously and exclusively in what Jesus did at Calvary. Jesus says, I, I offer you eternal life. You can be forgiven. He doesn't want you to have to hope or wish or wonder or guess that your home is in heaven. Today can be the day of salvation. And I can promise you that whatever holds you back one day will not be worth it. Anything that you can hold in your hands, you will one day lose. Only that which you let God hold will you be able to take with you Will you let God hold your life today? Jesus, I pray for every person in this place that not one among us would miss the opportunity to know you for eternity, true wealth. With every head bowed, every eye closed, if you can say emphatically there was a moment in your life that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you're ready today, if today you died, you know where you would be, you know what you would see. Would you so maybe raise your hands very quickly, very quietly, I know for sure where I would be, I'm ready. I'm so thankful so many of you with hands in the air are ready. But some of us couldn't raise our hand, not honestly. And you can put your hands down. Can I ask you this question? If you're not certain today and you know in your heart of hearts you're not ready, you can't answer that absolutely. All I want to do right now is pray for you. Can I do that? Raise your hand up quickly, quietly. Just hold it in the air. I'm not ready, I'm not sure. Yes, ma'am, I see you. Yes, ma'am, up in the terrace, I see you. Yes, sir, down front, center, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, I wanna pray for you right now. Just hold your hand up high, would you? Jesus, you see these hands right now in this auditorium, and these hands represent honest hearts, and I pray that today would be the day of salvation for each of these, that they wouldn't leave here with any doubt, no more wondering or hoping, but tonight when they lay their head on their pillow, they can lay with complete security, certainty of their destiny eternally, that today would be the day of salvation. With every head bowed, every eye closed, listen, I just prayed for you, your hands in the air, without delay. As others are leaving this place today, I want you to stay. You come down here, there are pastors and people down here at this altar, this platform, to answer your questions to pray with you, to make certain before you leave that you're ready for heaven. Love y'all very much. Thank you, Pastor Phil. What a word that was. <laughs> Love what he said. Life is hard anyways. And life is hard enough anyways. Don't make it harder by living without Jesus. Some of you need to come down when others are leaving. I want to encourage you to do that. Take your next step. Maybe it's salvation. Maybe you need a group of people to help spur you along. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Hope to see you back at 4.30 over at the Core for the Well. Verse by verse study of the book of Revelation with Pastor Phil. Love to see you at the story room as well. God bless you guys. God be with you. We'll see you next week.